¿Qué es la vida? Un frenesí. ¿Qué es la vida? Una ilusión, una sombra, una ficción. Y el mayor bien es pequeño, que toda la vida es sueño, y los sueños sueños son. Y Pedro Calderón de la Barca, Life is a Dream, Segismundo stands in the very line in which the world divides between rationality and brutality, freedom and servitude. Because of the fears and indecision of his father, the king, he lives his life as a two-faced monster. Some days as a prisoner in solitary confinement, and some days as a prince. Segismundo goes to bed as one creature and wakes up as the opposite. Every day Segismundo doesn't know naturally which one of the cells in the real one is the real one and which one is a dream. At the end of the second act of the play of Calderón de la Barca, Segismundo decides to embrace his division and make of it a gift instead of a burden. As Albert Camus, Sisyphus, he embraces his pain, and that makes him free. What is life? A frenzy, he says in the quote I just read in Spanish. What is life? An illusion, a shadow, fiction, and our greatest good endures but a short time. As all of us, Segismundo is divided, but he knows because of his eccentric life experience that there are not absolute values. So his ability to keep sane depends on staying always strong, alert, smarter than the others that surround him. After all, he continues, life is just a dream, and the dreams are dreams too. Segismundo is awake. It's us who live in the illusion of security who are dreaming. Every spring, Thanks to the generosity of Penn America and the City University of New York, I sit all Friday nights with a group of writers desperate to tell a story. People for whom writing is not a road to recognition or a means of making money, but an effort to open consciences, to make a space in the world for themselves and others who share their unacknowledged situation. Let me quote the more quoted comedian of this day. They we sit together to make America great again. In the Dreamers workshop, we work hard. We laugh a lot. We produce materials that we all hope will become the beginning of a writing career. During the last days of the process, a bunch of friends of this experience help us to prepare for this reading with their line edits, comments, advice, and moral support. They are all writers, editors, translators, agents that we admire and respect. Some of them are in the hall. Thank you, my people. Thank you, indeed. They are Ria Guillén, Laura Perciasepe, John Gray, Katy Kitamura, Reina Grande, Heather Cleary, Daniel Kettleman, Nimi Gurimiatan, and Valeria Luiselli. They are all people whose work we admire and will to spend time with us, we prize. We know how precious time is in a writer's life. Thank you, Ria, Laura, Katie, Reina, Heather, Daniel, Mimi, and Flaca. In order to be here, you and I had an early lunch, took the subway, made a donation. In order to be here, Hazel, Ophelia, Yesenia, Maria, Victoria, Maria Camelia, 
Camila, Gisela, Donauta, Blanca, Orlando, Anamalia, Crossed Borders, Defeated the Cops, camouflaged themselves as Americans until they became Americans, but without the protection of the law. They went through the via crucis of denouncing themselves to the authorities in order to stop living in fear, but not really, because their freedom to be who they are depends on the fragility of an executive order that can be revoked any day. Differently than most of the writers that participate in the amazing Pen World Voices Festival, the members of the Dreamers Workshop Project are putting very serious things at risk to be reading here for you. But to act, said James Baldwin in his beautiful letter to his nephew, is to be committed, and to be committed is to be in danger. We are here to give testimony of one of the most extreme and literary ways of being American in our days. We are here precisely because it's dangerous and there is not a higher ideal in the life of a writer than that of the Italian Renaissance poets that thought that in order to write great literature, you have to live a great life, a great and dangerous life. Let me be clear. I spend my life attending book festivals, panels, literary events. But it's only one night of every year that I have the feeling of being among true writers, awakened soldiers of the world. This is it. As Segismundo, the members of the Dreamers Workshop Project have a persistent conscience about the fact that our peaceful everyday life is not given, but something we have to fight for. Staying strong and alert, outsmarting the system every damn minute of our life. Resistance is a topic for most of us. For the dreamers, it's breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They are right. What was Obamacare but a dream? Some evil Christian freak can take the right, can take your right to live a healthy life out of you with a snap of his white fingers. Just so a clown feels that he achieved something in, let's say, his day 103 in office. We are in the shoulders of giants. Let me keep going with James Baldwin, who was able to say a thousand times better than I do what I am trying to say. The danger in the minds of most white Americans is the loss of their identity. But these men are your brothers, your lost younger brothers. And if the word integration means anything, that is what it means, that we, with love, shall force our brothers to see themselves as they are, to cease fleeing from reality and begin to change it. For this is your home, my friend, and you will not, you will not be driven from it. The dreamers know that the home is an illusion. I am not myself anymore, said Federico Garcia Lorca, and my house is not my house. He was speaking about the rejection suffered by gay people in the 1930s. I said before that the dreamers know that the house is an illusion. But they are in the house and they are fearless and they are talented and they are the most precious and brave people America Sorry, it happens every year. <laughs> the dreamers know that the house is an illusion, but they are in the house and they are fearless and they are talented and they are the most precious and brave people America has to show the world 
that we still have a dream and dreams must not be deferred. We have the dream in the house, people. And we have the shoulders of our giants to stand and fight for it. We read, we write, we give testimony. Thank you for listening. So thank you for being here. 11 Dreamers will kick us tonight. Thank you for staying with us. The first one is Hazel Bonilla. Hazel Bonilla was born in San Salvador. They, they are very young, but they have very long biographies. I will cut them a little bit. Hazel Bonilla, she's graduating from a BFA in Technical Theater, major from Brooklyn College. Outside of school, she is the leader of the Arts and Expression Committee Act at the New York State Young Leadership Council and member of the Girl Be Heard. Hazel Bonilla is an extraordinary drama writer, please. opportunity to join us today. I stand here before you to regard the pressing topic of the DREAM Act and our broken immigration reform. I'd like to reassure everyone today that the deportations will only target criminals because we value the contributions undocumented immigrants give towards our society. Sorry, President, but that has been a lie. Live from D.C., we have just been informed that the president has been interrupted mid-speech by a young activist going by the name of Inspiration, going to live footage. Listen to me. You are tearing families apart. These are innocent people that are trying to stay alive. You have to halt all deportations. Okay, all right. Surely you're telling me I alone can change the system? Inspiration, stop the president mid-speech. Ask him what about my parents. Tell him to stop calling us dreamers. Tell him this dreamer will wake up with the immigration reform passes. We will stop at nothing. Through the power of the people, we can change the system. Your executive powers can change the system. Stop the deportations. Yes, stop all deportations. Stop deportations. Stop deportations. Thank you. All right, if I can just continue with my speech. You have the power to make it stop. High pitch noise, time passes. Newspaper uh, entry stage. Thank you for joining us. As always in our breaking news, tonight we go live to the announce that President will become Mr. President and has become the 45th President of the United States, defeating the campaign unlike anything we've ever seen in our lifetime. President does a quick uh, change and ha now has a uh, red, red tie and blonde wig. <laughs> and I want to make it clear that I will deport anyone and everyone who came to the United States illegally, all 11 million of them, the rapists, 
killers, and drug dealers who are up to no good. No, it's all over. When Samba walks away, there's a projection on the wall reading, New Trump deportation allows rules far more than expulsion. Newspaper, reading from a newspaper. <laughs> but politically, Mr. President's actions serve to reinforce the following. Unauthori unauthorized immigrants are taking jobs away from citizens, committing heinous crimes, and being a financial burden on federal, state, and local governments. Lights up, X walks on stage, we are in X's apartment. Uh, there's a party and the cast walks on stage. Gotta say, costume party despite the elections, I'm fucking loving it. <laughs> Watch out, one wave of my wand and I'll, I'll cast all the votes away. This is exactly what I need. Oh, a night, a night to laugh about what happened. I'm still in shock. Can we talk about this though? I mean, oh my God. Honestly, I'm a little bit nervous because there's talks that my work permit will be taken away. Oh shit, what did you say to your boss? I'm, I'm talking about the new president. He says that he's planning to take my work permit away. So you can say I'm a little bit stressed. Anyways, how are things with your boo? Oh God, the drama. It's not that I'm not happy. Isn't the, isn't, it's, it's the things, it's the things they say sometimes. It can be really inappropriate and they just don't get it. What can I say? Their family is the same way too. I just wish they realized that saying things like a woman's place is inside the kitchen. These things are not tolerated, especially by someone like me. Did you ever confront the, to them about it? No. Well, maybe you should. If it's bothering you that much, it maybe you should bring it up. It wouldn't hurt. Yeah. Just give it a thought. I have to do it all the time, especially when it comes to what people should call me because of my status. Actually, I think that came up in our conversation too. Please don't get offended. You know I love you. What he said made some sense. He called you an illegal. X is visibly hurt but does not say anything. Continuing. As if you're some kind of monster. So I told him, hey, just because X is illegal, X is still a good person. Still recovering and trying to force the light mood again. Have you seen Inspiration? I think they say that they would come tonight. Lights, Inspiration enters and Inspiration and X hug it out. An undocumented wizard, I'm digging the outfit. Yeah, where's your costume? I'm American for tonight. How's that for you? <laughs> Do you want a drink? Maybe get you relaxed? Get you into a costume? A costume, huh? I still don't get why costumes. Hey, why not? I mean, the way I see it, these are scary times we're living in. So how are you holding up? Hey, I'm, I'm chilling. The way that I see it, the undocumented hustle never ends. Shit, really? I've been super stressed. I keep thinking, if I lose DACA, this will be it. No way. I, I mean, with the, with the ITIN, the individual's uh, taxpayer identification number, you could actually enroll as a freelancer and you'll be just fine. You're lying. No, I swear I look it up. I went up to my boss and I told him, listen, this is my situation and if for some reason uh, I don't have my work permit, 
would you be comfortable enrolling me as a freelancer position? And they were fine with it. It's it's all about open communication, though. You'll never know what your you'll never know what your job has if you never ask them. Shit, thanks. I gotta try that on my own, boss. Do it. I mean, the worst thing that they could say is no. Hey, I have some stuff that could make you feel more relaxed if you're up for it. Let's go somewhere else. Sure. Okay. Pulling out a baggie of drugs. <laughs> okay. Now eat this and wait. This is shrooms? Trust me, it's it's pretty great. They wait in nervous excitement, waiting for the drugs to kick in. So, how are you holding up? I think you already asked me that question. My friend called me an illegal before you guys came in. I didn't know how to respond to them. Did you confront them about it? That's funny, I was just telling them to confront someone else. Just tell them how you feel. At the end of the day, all that matters is you. Thanks. I can't tell if you're being nice, or is it because of the drugs? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you have to give it more time for the drugs to kick in. Anyways, how are you holding up with your ex? Oh, I'm losing my permit, and now I'm single. I think the universe is turning on me. <laughs> Just use your wizard magic. Poof, papers magically appear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I can't believe you dated somebody like your ex. Un blanquito. <laughs> it was great. It was great. This is a, this is a first time for everything. For me, I could never do it. I just, I'm not a fan of white people at all. Come on, surely you don't, you don't mean that you hate all of them. I mean, I think I really do. The problem with them is that white people have so much privilege, they never stop to think about it. Uh, to them, life is peachy. They go about their day in and out without thought. They live in a world inside their own bubble, and they get to, uh, they get to choose if they support a movement in, or not. And at the end of the day, they get to choose if they're bored of that movement and move on to the next one. Hey, everyone has a good and bad side to them. Listen, I know I'm not. I listen. I know I'm not guilty of being 100% 100% behind all the rallies and the protests. But with you, it's different. You have to make your rent money. But you can't ask for a change of racism if you perpetrate racism racism yourself. Inspiration. You want to talk about perspective when it's their lack of perspective that got us here in the first place. At the end of the day, we're the ones who who take all your money and take all your jobs. Jobs and money they'll never even want to have. They want to be angry because of their failing capitalist system, and they direct it at us. We talk about the rapists and the killers, but don't talk about the fruits in your Whole Foods, the janitors cleaning up after you, the construction workers risking their lives, those who are constantly, constantly serving you. And yes, that does, that does include the drug dealers. To them, there are no monsters when it comes to the school shootings because they're just a one-time thing, or the cops who kill because they're just the bad cops. Not the school rapes, they're just the kids who've gone bad. I don't really know what to say from the other side. This, this, this division that you're talking about is what got us here in the first place. I mean, look at somebody like Bernie fighting since the civil rights, which we still are. Nothing has changed. Yeah, well, he's different. Aha, so you say you, uh, you can't say you hate all white people. <laughs> Thank you. Maria Miranda was born in Honduras and was brought to the United States at the age of 11. 
She graduated from BMCC on December 2016 and is currently enrolled at Hunter College studying psychology. Maria?
an illicit crossing point for generations of Central Americans seeking to enter Mexico on the way to the United States. And there I was, a small child waiting for the balsa, the rap, to come back from the other side and pick us up. One came up and it was time to move forward into the journey. I got on. And a man with chakra shorts and a white t-shirt started rolling. As the rap started moving, I started to look around. I noticed that Mexico was not far from Guatemala. I was afraid to fall in the water. We crossed into Mexico, rafting over the Suchiate River from Guatemala to Ciudad Hidalgo, Chiapas. On the Mexican side, there were houses and people waiting to help migrants to get off. We hid in a house for so long that my skin seems to forget how the sunlight felt. Another coyote gave me a phone so I could talk to my mom and so my and so called and my so called guardian angel. I told my mom that I have not seen Louis, El Coyote, and that the last time that I saw him was in Guatemala. After my mom hung up the phone, Louis called me and gave me instructions for the next step. At seven PM, a man came to pick me up. I remember telling myself as, as a little girl, am I going to get raped? Is this where I die? The man never spoke to me in the way. The man then brought me to a lady. She asked me if I wanted anything to eat, and I said yes. So she gave me cereal. It wasn't cornflakes. It was Choco Christie's. We left her house early in the morning, and all she told me was to not say anything, just like you always told me when we were about to cross Guatemala. Driving along the rocky roads ahead of us, my, lady, my little body kept going up and down like a bouncing basketball. Sometimes I pretended to be asleep, but I was up thinking that something might happen to me. In no time, the lady started speaking in a weird language outside her window to men with short hair styles and brown uniform. I picked with one eye open to see where I was, and I was as if I was zooming in on a camera to take a picture. There was a police officer. We were probably entering the United States of America. I made it to the United States, along with the lady who brought me. We got to Houston, Texas. Everything seemed so different. In every corner, there was a stop sign. I did not know what that meant. There were not many people walking down the streets. We arrived to a gas station. The lady who drove the car called my mom and said, if nobody's here within five minutes, I will leave. Abandon your daughter. She's here in Texas. I was left alone and time went by too slow. It felt as if I was looking down at the time while running on a treadmill. I was so confused, not knowing if someone was going to pick me up or if I was going to stay in Texas all alone. There were different thoughts coming into my mind and I could not focus on what was around me. I remember the colors of the guy stations, but not the name. The colors were white, red, and yellow. I don't recall what clothes I had on, but I, I know that I didn't have a sweater and that I was wearing jeans. It wasn't cold out. Soon enough, people approached me, claiming they were my family, frying my arms thrown up in the air like windmills. I did not want to be touched by people I did not know. Then they gave me a phone, and I hear my mom's voice said, these people are your family. I am waiting for you in New York City. Before going to the house, the family took me to a big store. And there, they bought me a pink jacket with the matching pants. 
And that was going to be the outfit I used when I was about to meet my family in New Jersey. They made tamales, just like the ones my grandma used to make, where they were wrapped differently. Here, they were wrapped in um, aluminum foil. Eh, y en Honduras estaban envueltos en hojas de plátano. My journey continued. Two men in a band picked me up from my aunt's house. They said they were going to take me to my parents. They said I would be safe with them. I got on the van, and it was full of other people trying to get to Miami, New York, and other different states. At night, I saw the tall buildings just like the ones in New York City. In the middle of the night, we stopped at Burger King. The guys who were in the front ordered a huge amount of food. There were burgers and can of sodas everywhere. The next stop I remember was when I, when we stopped at a Mexican restaurant. They ordered tacos and I ate them like I haven't eaten before. Ahora estamos a solo, un, un, ahora so, estamos a solo horas de una salida en New Jersey. Y ahí era donde mi familia me recogería. Well, I needed to go to the restroom and I started crying because I could not hold it anymore. They said that we were going to be there soon. We got to a McDonald's and I rushed to the restroom. When I got out, the guy who got up with me asked me if I wanted anything. And I said yes, that I was thirsty. He bought me a meal in McDonald's. All I remember was the orange juice. We finally arrived to where I was going to meet my parents. The band went around the area and it finally stopped in the back. My mom rushed to the band and said, Vengo a recoger a mi hija, Jackie. Then they asked me, ¿Esa es tu mamá? ¿La conoces? I was in shock and I couldn't answer the question. My mom kept saying, Jackie, ¿qué pasó? ¿Por qué no respondes? Diles que sí me conoces. But no words came out of my mouth. My mother argued with, with the man, driving, and said, Si no fuera mi hija, no estuviera aquí reclamándola. The people inside the van agreed with her, and they finally, they finally gave me to my mother. Finally, her heartbeat and mine were together. My mom carried me in her arms and took me to where my dad was waiting in the car. Thanks very much, Daria. Here comes Ofelia Acanjo. Ofelia was born in Ghana and holds a BA in English and Communication Studies from Brown College, CUNY. She is the creator and editor of a creative writing and social issues blog entitled Chronicles of a Yamty Introvert. She won the Herman Writing Short Story Competition at Brown in 2016 she writes fiction as well as poetry. Ophelia. Hello, everyone. Um, just to announce, this is just a short excerpt from my longer um, piece. So it's called Burning Blackness. You're not like the others. It rang in her head like a bell. America imposed on Gina an identity called blackness. It inflicted on her a burning blackness. In Ghana, her history had an origin. She was a dignified Casino woman. But in America, blackness was inevitable for someone like her with dark brown skin. It was the umbrella under which she stood regardless of whether or not she understood what it meant. Being African was another identifier people placed on her. 
She had suddenly become the face of a continent full of varying cultures, languages, and people, many of whom she had neither met nor heard about and still had to represent. In her, inaccuracy had found giant shoulders on which to stand. Blackness seemed to her an inconclusive description. How could one define themselves mostly by the color of their skin? It was not the blackness that was new to her. After all, she was surrounded by a sea of black people back in Ghana. Blackness created Ghana, and Ghana indulged in blackness. No surprises. Why dwell on the obvious when other matters were staring you stone cold in the face? However, it was the emphasis on her blackness which led to the assumptions made by her that was novel. It prompted her to unveil to them patches of her once flowery life saying, I'm not black. I come from a royal family back in Ghana and I have a university degree. Except her Jamaican friend disillusioned her by telling her that it was a waste of time trying to undo a business that had already been settled. No one cares, you're still black, she would often say to Gina. Included in the things Gina missed about living in Ghana was the sense of community. She longed for the days when she could go over to her parents' home and her friends' homes with little notice. She loved how easily conversations sprung up when she was among them. Nothing was off limits. Unfortunately for her, the Americans she had encountered, particularly in New York City, were brash people who were invested in an overt individualism. They hardly dropped in for visits or offered satisfying conversations. They responded with, I know, right, to almost everything, <laughs> even before she completed her sentences. They knew of everything and yet knew about nothing. She also discovered that among the Ghanaians she had met, one's validity was contingent on how many years one had lived in the U.S. Five years of living here seemed to be the minimum required of all accurate contributors. Any other number and your arguments were branded baseless. When she tried offering suggestions during her first few years, especially if it was in regard to American life, they'd give her sneering looks as though to say, what do you know? Her experiences in the US was life altering and despite it never being her intention, she could no longer ignore the fact that change had come knocking on her door and she had opened. In retrospect, the bodies that surrounded her back in Ghana were practically king's folk. They were familiar, but here she was in a country which was supposedly the best in the world, offering a plethora of people from various parts of the globe, and yet still couldn't shake off her feeling of entrapment. Despite the many bodies that surrounded her, she was still engulfed in a vulturous loneliness. The buddies meant nothing because they were exactly that, buddies, ones with whom she had a hard time resurrecting into familial beings. Just like many of the Ghanians she knew, she married someone she barely knew in hopes of becoming legal. Legal. Making humans legal on earth? What absurdity, what hypocrisy. Perhaps the Americans and Westerners who had overstayed their time in Africa should also be sent to packing with bold spellings of illegal written all over their foreheads. The idea of marriage, even if it was devoid of love, was exhausting for Gina. 
The only man she truly, she had truly been in love with was Della's father. Their meeting in senior secondary school was love at first sight. They met during an event her school had hosted, inviting students from various secondary schools. He accorded her a fresh, a sense of freshness that other boys her age failed, and his kind, almond-shaped eyes, brown eyes, were enticing. She loved the lengthy conversations they had, and she yearned for more. The words that fell from their lips knew no boundaries, and when silence prevailed between them, it was never gawky. Della, how's it going? Gina asked when she called her. She was nervous. It's going. I'm doing all right. And how about yourself? Donna responded. I'm also okay. But listen, I have to tell you something. Oh, okay. What is it? I'm getting married. I have to do it. I need to do it in order to get legal in this place. I hope you understand. Oh, I see. Well, I guess you have to do what you have to do. I understand. Della spoke after a long pause. Thanks for understanding. I just had to tell someone about it before I go crazy, you know? Gina added. Well, we do what we must, Della responded. We do what we must, Gina murmured to herself. She cried herself to sleep, feeling both angry and sad about her circumstance. It felt to her that she had become a sacrificial being want to be used as restoration for a malfunctioning world. On the day of the courtward wedding, she wore a floral print dress. The dress was a facade. It represented on the outside what she didn't feel on the inside. As she sat in the backseat of a taxi, she looked out the window and began, get, and began to get lost in the scenery of the heavy rain. However, soon enough, the driver began an unwarranted interrogation. Where are you from, he queried. Knowing exactly what he meant, she still answered, New York City. <laughs> no, I mean, where are you really from? Well, if you really must know, my apartment that I barely live in, but I still have to pay rent for because I work so damn much, is in the Bronx, she rebelled. He took the hint and remained quiet for some time. Africa? He broke the silence again. What does it matter? Do I not look like I belong here? She responded. I have many, many friends from Africa, he said with his accented R rolling of his tongue. They're from Senegal and Cote, Cote something. Cote d'Ivoire, she corrected with irritation in her voice as he struggled to remember. You from there too? The driver questioned. No, shit. Can you just drive me? I need you to just drive. No more questions. African or not, I'm still treated the same, so what's the point? And do you ask your white passengers if they're from here too? I bet not, she ranted. I only tried to make conversation, please, no anger. He tried to calm her down. And by the way, you don't look or sound like you're from here either, she retaliated. <laughs> I, America, I live here for more than 20 years. I, America, he repeated as though trying to convince himself of his belonging. Mm. Oh, are you? Are you a citizen? She retorted sarcastically. 
After that, she was met with a, with a quiet that she longed for from the beginning of the ride. <laughs> well, not yet. I'm in the process. He persistently broke the silence again. Some things happened, he confessed. I see, she responded with indifference. This is America. You can do whatever you want and succeed, you know. It is the American dream, he went on. Oh, really? So why are you still a cab driver? She couldn't contain her fear. I will get there, don't worry. You will too. Oh yeah? Well, this is my stop, she said while getting off. Then looking at him through the half-open passenger seat window, she stared at him piteously. She looked at him, looked through him, reached down into his soul and then added, there are no homes here, just bodies. Her green card arrived several months after the court wedding, and as she sat down staring at it, all she could think about was home. She called her daughter up in the middle of the night and said, I'm coming home. Thank you. Now, when cannot use adverbs anymore because you, know, you, you feel that you are saying "bidi." Sorry, Yesenia, Yesenia, Yesenia with what? Sorry, sorry, sorry. I was thinking about the picture of the frog here, <laughs> but, but I will stop here. Yesenia Guapisqua was born in Cuenca, Ecuador, and arrived to the United States. Four years ago, she's amazingly young. She's attending Borough of Manhattan Community College, majoring in multimedia programming and design. She has been an active member in her community by working at the Atlas DIY Aztaca Squad member and in the Educational Opportunities Initiative at the Mexican Consulate. Yesenia, ladies and gentlemen, this is the house. Jose's journey was a different story. Having crossed 
several voters, he approached the Mexican U.S. border, his lips cracking in salty as he walked. His eyes were cloudy with dust, almost too dry to blink another tear. His hair, his hair was hard and stiff by all sweat, extending his hands from his palms. All sweat because his body could not longer sweat anymore. His only gallon of water didn't last long. He was dizzy from drinking his own urine. He was beyond rational thought. Con esperanza en cada paso que daba. But the U.S. slammed its door on him over and over, each time with more pleasure. He repeated the same journey three times. Sometimes family back at home wouldn't know if he was still alive. Each, each trip um, cost $7,000, money he borrowed without knowing that he might be paying for his own death. Agents often know their clients, having apprehended them several times already. Night or day, the procedure tends to be the same. Beatings, lagrimas, shootings, blood, lagrimas, skid rips, rape. It's the endless legacy of the human mind. The desert doesn't care what color your skin is, how many, how many times you step in sand, or how many kids you're leaving behind, and Jose knew this by heart. On his fourth attempt, he succeeded in running from the agents in green. When he was at the top of the last hill, his steps felt lighter, and he, and he turned his face toward the burning sun and the tallest blue sky. Perhaps, he thought, this is the happiness that comes after a bottle is over. The direction of the wind served as a sign to welcome him to the land he longed for. He remembers running, recalling the voices of his children, saying, Papi, no te vayas otra vez. He never had the full courage to respond, I'm leaving again because regardless of how many times I put my life at risk, I want to make sure once I'm able to cross over, life gets better and easier, mis angelitos, and so he ran faster. When Jose and Narcisa left Ecuador, their three children stayed with their aunt. Rocio, the older sister, was forced to mature quickly and take care of her younger sister, younger siblings. Sometimes Nando and Gabby asked, are mommy and daddy coming soon? These were the moments when Rocio had to swallow her pain and uncertainty first so it wouldn't taste as painful for her siblings and say, ya vendrán, ya vendrán. Rocio, who was seven years old, had to confront the reality that their parents were not coming soon. But Nando, who was four, and Gabby, two years old, didn't have to know this harsh reality just yet. Once Narcisa and Jose finally settled in the U.S., they had to work three jobs each to pay back the thousands of dollars they earned. There was not a single moment when they didn't think of their children. The inability to see them, hug them, kiss them, was eating them alive. Soon they were full of despair, and they couldn't seem to hold into the memories of the faces of their three little ones anymore, until Michelle was born three, three years later. As Michelle was growing up, she, told, she was told she had siblings. She lived with both of her parents, and with a better style, this country had to offer her just because she was born here. Or her siblings were growing up, thinking their American sister got to have it all. On a cloudy day in September, Michelle's parents arrived home around 1 p.m. from their early shifts at the restaurant. Narcisa did something small and quick, while Jose rested for a little while before he had to go back to work. 
Before Narcisa went to pick up Michelle from daycare and the room getting filled by joyful noises and conversations with Michelle's imaginary friends, Narcisa and Jose discussed the money they had to send back home at the end of the week and some other chismes del barrio. Everything seemed like a normal day. Yet outside there was no sky, only a raw blanket of mud ray to cover them all and block out the sun. The, the usual greenish coast of the countryside of New Jersey were muted. The air was dense y soplando fuerte. For some people, this country is not just made for them, not even if they contribute to the national progress. They came back. Now they were dressed in dark blue uniforms with yellow letters saying police ads. Um, rather than knocking, they banged on the door until Jose opened. You know its name? They asked. Jose trembled and started to whisper to himself, Images of his daughter asking, Donde esta papi? and his wife, unstoppably crying, rushed through his mind as the agents waited for an answer. In this intense silence, he somehow managed to say no. In this moment, it was vivid the feeling of the sweat drenching his skin, the dropping of his tears. The ringing of scream vibrating in his ears, the thumping of his heart against his chest. Jose and Narcisa knew what would happen next. The wall began to crush, um, to crush down in front of them, but there wasn't a way out. Will you please come with us to answer some questions? Questions that wouldn't bring him back. Rumors were going around about ICE taking man only. It was true because ICE agents could have been taken, could have taken both of them. But Jose was not meant to be here. No, please, no, por favor, no se lo lleven, Narcisa yelled. As the air felt heavy, somehow she screamed, eyes wide open with pain, her mouth rigid and open, her face gunned and mobile, her, her fist clenched with blanched knuckles with her nails digging deeply into the palms of her hands. It was a, a scream of disappointment, disbelief, e impotencia. As they handcuffed Jose, Narcisa was handcuffed to the suffering. They were not only taking Jose, but Narcisa's soul and Michelle's entire world, too. Narcisa ran af downstairs after them, crying, screaming, No, please, no, tenga piedad. Perhaps it was useless because it was exactly what they lacked compassion. As Jose was walking with his Head down, he felt disposable, rejected. Como si el país se puso de pie no para honrar su trabajo, pero para aplaudir su despedida. He no longer sensed the tears coming down. He wanted to look back, but he wasn't allowed to. He couldn't understand why he was targeted. He worked endlessly to provide food for his family, helped his neighbors, respected the U.S. laws, paid taxes, and was raising a beautiful daughter. Here, right here, after having run miles, without the recognition of anyone for the sacrifice he made of crossing borders, only to work for his family, with tears in his eyes, and it kills him to have to live in the same way. As they were taking him on the sidewalk, he walked. When he came home at, one, um, at 11 p.m. after working, where he walked taking Michelle to her daycare, El Camino que dirigía su casa now takes him to a black car that soon disappeared. Michelle was giggling, and playing around as she approached home, not knowing why, 
she was picked up by her neighbor. She was happy and ready to tell her friends in her broken sentences she read a new story that day. Yet, when she entered her house, she saw her mom crying, making her, making her dizzy as Narcisa walked back and forth continuously. Michelle's little eyes were trying to find the eyes of her daddy, but he was gone. She was four, a, simil a similar age to Rocio, Nando, and Gabby at the moment when Jose had to leave Ecuador. Immigration took their daddy around the same time in their lives. It was meant to be, to have a family they will never have the chance to be united with. Physical voters caught of parents on one side, leaving loved ones on the other one, suffering without them. Hoy y siempre las dos caras de la frontera lloran insensatamente. City past January, and she aspires to be a journalist and is currently attending the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism, where she majors in social journalism. Victoria, where are you? Ah, here. <laughs> Victoria is She was on her way to class and didn't want to be late. As she hurried down the street, passing the tall buildings and running through a horde of people filling up the sidewalks, she remembered the years of hard work it took to get here. She was finally living a life she was proud of, going to journalism school in New York, a city she fell in love with on a warm September day a few years back. Vanessa was born and raised in Germany, a place with what seems like an abundance of opportunities and where its citizens live a peaceful life. She was lucky. Growing up, her parents were able to provide her with a life that millions of others could only dream of. Even though today, Germany is considered a great and powerful place to live, it also has a dark history. Two generations before, life in Germany was the opposite of what it is now. The war destroyed not only cities that had thousands of years of history, it also destroyed the sense of identity of the German people. Elizabeth, Vanessa's grandmother, never stopped telling the same story of what happened when she was nine. My dear father, I loved him so dearly, she said. We were hiding in the basement when the Russians came. A soldier grabbed him by his neck, and I knew he was going to kill him right in front of me. I screamed and screamed, begging the soldier, Bitte lassen Sie ihn frei. Please let him go. It was a miracle, she said. The soldier looked at me and hesitated. Then he just dropped him on the ground and took off. We knew we couldn't stay anymore, and that same night, we left everything behind and fled. Weeks later, Elizabeth and her family arrived in Frankfurt with absolutely nothing. No toys, no clothes, no food, no home. The history of the war still haunts the German people today. What happened almost nine years ago caused a lot of pain in the world. So when the war had finally ended, nobody from Elizabeth's generation would ever openly utter the words, I'm proud to be German. The German flag would never become a front yard accessory the way Americans probably flaunted at every given opportunity. 
Vanessa is part of the first generation that grew up in the Germany the world knows today. Although it is now considered to be a powerful and great place to live, neither her parents nor her grandparents ever taught her how to say the patriotic words, I'm proud, because this is what the war and its aftermath taught them. Germany, German history was always on the agenda in school. Every year, Vanessa learned more about the events that led to the war and how much work it took to get the world to view her country in a more positive light again. In seventh grade, she began studying English, which also introduced her to the United States of America. She absolutely loved learning a new language, and the more English she spoke, the more determined she became to master it. So she be began consuming American literature and started watching American movies always making sure the subtitles were turned on so she could learn as many new words as possible. The more time she spent studying, the more she also got to know the American culture. It's so fascinating, she told her dad. They seem to have such a completely different mindset compared to the people here. They seem to enjoy life more. I visited the US a few times when I, when I was in my 20s. I definitely made fun memories there, he said. Just like her dad, Vanessa had the burning desire to go on adventures and explore the world. She was stunned by the love Americans had for their country, as it was a concept she never really experienced herself. This triggered her curiosity, and she couldn't wait to visit the United States. At 16, she was one of only two people in her school who left Germany for a year to live in the U.S. as an exchange student. While her friends and relatives were excited that she got the chance to go on this adventure, None of them ever really understood why she was so intrigued by this country. Americans have way more problems than we do here, her friend Inga always said after Vanessa had returned. It looks like a great country to visit, but it's great, crazy that you want to keep going back. I know the U.S. isn't perfect. I'm aware of all the issues and hardships Americans are dealing with every day, but it's not, that about, it's not about that for me, Vanessa responded every time someone questioned her. She didn't let all the flaws of American politics or the economy or the lack of a good healthcare system defined her view of the U.S. To her, it was about this feeling she had when she was there, the feeling of belonging. One night during spring break in her junior year, something happened that changed everything. Vanessa was on her way to Inga's house, where the two of them had planned to spend a fun evening watching their favorite movies the way they so often did. It was already dark, and she was about a mile away from Inga's house when she stood to turn left. The lights of another car seemed to have come out of nowhere. Before she could realize it, she was blinded by the brightest shade of white. Her body was shook by a sudden loud explosion. Then everything went black. Ears were still ringing when she regained her conscience. Her body was stiff and strapped to a bed inside the ambulance. Vanessa, my chest, you're okay. Do you feel any pain? Don't worry, I'm here. Her mom's voice soothed the panic attack she felt overcoming her body. When you feel like you're ready, the police needs to talk to you. Oh my God, Vanessa thought, it's my fault. Her chest felt so tight she couldn't breathe. A week later, spring read had ended and class started. Vanessa spent the few, last few days trying to deal with the result of her crash. Two total cars, a girl in the hospital with a broken collarbone. Only her friend Inga knew what, about what happened and Vanessa intended to keep it that way. On her way to her locker, Frederick, the class clown who never missed an opportunity to make fun of others, approached her. I heard what happened, he said with a meanest grin on his face. Is it true that you lost your license? Well, I guess you'll never run a red light again, huh? Vanessa felt her stomach drop. A million thoughts raced through her head. How did he know about the crash? 
Who else knows? Why are they telling lies about what happened? The other driver hit me. He was the one going too fast. Why did I not see him? It's all my fault. Over the next months, she wouldn't hear the end of it. All the laughing behind her back, the idiotic rumors that wouldn't stop. Every day she was reminded of the scariest day of her life. She was mortified. She couldn't wait to get out. That fall, she took her first trip to New York. Finally, she was able to catch a break again and feel a level of happiness. In the U.S., Vanessa could be whoever she wanted to be. Her American friends accepted her in a way she felt her German friends never did. The day of her crush changed her, and the constant bullying of her classmates pushed her over the edge. That's it, she thought. As soon as I'm done with school, I'm leaving. I can't be here anymore. In this school, in this city, in this country. I just went out. She knew that spending time there shaped her view of the world and of life. She always brought back new perspectives, new memories. Especially after what happened, Germany didn't seem exciting anymore. It felt like a great place where people weren't friendly, where people kept to themselves and never talked to strangers, where it was common to always complain about things rather than see the positive side, where teachers had no personal connections to their students. The darkest part of German history was on the syllabus every single year leading up to graduation. Compared to what, what Vanessa saw in the States, the German culture seemed to have been stuck in its own history, stuck in the times where feeling joy wasn't part of life, when the only thing Germans knew how to do was work hard, as they needed to build their country back up after the war, when only ashes were left of it. Visiting the U.S. gave Vanessa a sense of adventure and excitement in her life. In the U.S., she was able to escape her demons and depression that she battled with after her accident. She just needed to spend time away. She didn't want to hurt her parents with the desire to move to the U.S., but she struggled to explain it all. How do you describe the feeling, she asked her dad. I just feel like I can be myself in the U.S. I hate going to school here, and I absolutely loved it there. My friends in the U.S. don't judge me. People here are just mean. You will always be my family and my home, but right now, I know I'm happier there. She was aware how crazy this concept may sound to others, but she didn't feel like a German anymore who wished to move to the U.S. She felt like an American who needed to come home. Thanks very much, Veronica. Maria, Maria Camila Puerta. She's a ballet dancer, she's 19, pursuing a degree at Hunter College. Maria Camila will not read, but she's in the house with a hat. And someone would not know that who is reading everything. <laughs> Fantastic. Four words. That was all that came out. What was supposed to be a quick three-minute speech became ten minutes of utter humiliation. I stood there wishing the ground would swallow me up. It was supposed to be simple. We had to create a poster explaining a series of political cartoons and present them to the class. As each group went up to present, my anxiety grew. Everyone seemed calm and composed, and then there was me, bouncing my leg, drying my, my climbing hands. Our group was called. We stood up in unison. 
walked to the front of the classroom. I turned to face the class, closing my hands into fists. I prepared myself. <clears throat> I started in my political cartoons. Um, I tried to force out the words over the silence in the classroom. I started over. The main idea was my classmates were all staring at me. When I finished, I felt out of breath, as if I just ran a marathon. How could my mind be filled with a million thoughts, but I could only manage a couple sounds, a word at most? When would the voice in my head be the one I hear when I speak? A sense of hopelessness and bitterness overcame me. I even stopped speaking for a few years. I despise the sound of my voice and develop a hatred towards myself. Before you brush this off as something insignificant, understand that you may be taking this for granted, the ability to verbally express yourself clearly and fluently. The difference between me and other fellow stutterers is the fact that I do remember a time when I didn't stutter every time I opened my mouth. But that time was before our permanent move to the US. My mother tells me that the day we were leaving Colombia, all my family came here to say goodbye to us. And I promised everyone I would come back very soon. But those were just the promises of a three-year-old. Because 15 years have passed, and I have not been able to see them or even stay in touch. We moved to Los Angeles and lived there with family for no more than a year. The little I remember of family there are not my fondest memories. Our family had been there for a couple of years already. Though they also came here as immigrants with equally difficult journeys, they seemed to have forgotten all of that. So they made us feel unsuitable for American life and essentially beneath them. Although my parents did their best to provide for us while living in Los Angeles, it was hard for my mother to watch someone from her own family treat us in such a demeaning way. Eventually, we moved to New York to start fresh. I turned five and started kindergarten in New York. And although I was finally not <clears throat> as lonesome, it was difficult making friends when the only phrase I managed to get out were, do you want to play with me? And I need to use the bathroom. But it wasn't long before I started to handle English well. We lived like nomads, moving eight or nine times over the next few years, spending a year or two in each different place. As a child, I always started unfair when my classmate explains they lived in the same house their entire lives. It was something I always longed for. It was hard at first, some apartments smaller than others, cramming the little we had into closets and sleeping in dull white and dirty yellow painted rooms, empty with dark shadows filling the space that felt like a stranger's room. Nothing felt like my own. The older I got and the more we moved, the easier I detached from things and people. I got used to the idea that some people were temporary. And although this may have desensitized me, it makes the process of learning a place a lot easier. The stress of constantly moving, leaving my cousins, aunts, and uncles in Colombia, and the pressure to speak fluently and correctly, these were the things dragging me down day by day, and the need to suppress how it was making me feel just made things worse. I was at a point where I was suppressing everything my legal status, 
my parents struggle slaving away in jobs pulling after ungrateful people, my inability to verbally express myself, my brother's internal dilemma, not to mention the misogynistic home I was growing up in. Some days I cried out of frustration and my mother would tell me not to let anyone see me as if crying was something to be embarrassed about. So what could I do? I couldn't cry. I couldn't verbally express how I was feeling. And even when I tried, my voice trembled and I stammered to get a hold of whatever I could grasp. I was getting sucked into these issues like quicksand. The more I tried to feel myself from them, the faster they sucked me down. I've often questioned whether moving here was the right decision. My family fought so hard to make a better life. Yet we're Yet we've seen little improvement. We ran from a country of violence and no opportunity in search of a place where we could achieve our dreams, the American dream. But we, went, we ended up in another country with violence and limited opportunities. This one just has a great facade to fool everyone about its wonders. But sooner or later, the reality hits you. There is no freedom here. You will be isolated discriminated, segregated, and made to feel ashamed of your accent, your race, your ethnicity, the way you look, the way you speak, and who you are. The wealthy, those in charge, have no interest in helping the people. The people are treated like garbage. Our voices are suppressed, and no matter how hard we try to stand up for ourselves in their eyes, in the eyes of the monster we call our president, we are disposable. We are expendable. Is this the American dream we are all dreaming of? Cicela. Cicela is originally from Mexico. Thank you, Donata. Thank you, Mary. Cicela is originally from Mexico and gave me the longest biography in the universe, so you can sit down while I read the encyclopedia. They say the encyclopedia. She's originally from Mexico and came to the United States in 2011. She returned to school after taking a break for a number of years to raise her children. She's currently studying paralegal studies at Hostos Community College and plans to study sociology and political science at the City College of New York. She has had her writings published in New York City, in New York University Literacy Review. Ladies and gentlemen, please Thank you. Um, well, um, I want to say that this is also an excerpt for something that is meant to be much, much longer. So please enjoy it. I'm broken. I can still hear her weeping muted by a blow when that beast covered her mouth until the tears melted into the emptiness of the confusion, the desperate crying of her sisters as if they all shared the grief, as if they understood the sentence she was condemned to live in, although they were not in her place. It was not her fault, and I am still wondering how couldn't she understand it, why she insisted on blaming herself for her own misfortune. Since then, we, we share a sorrow that, we couldn't, that it could be, couldn't be reconciled. Since then, I cannot even count the times she was been sitting there asking me the, the same questions, without, even a, without paying attention to what is there. 
to what I have to say. She was looking for answers that I couldn't give because she was not me anymore. We were not we. Cowardice? No. Guilt. The guilt that killed her every time she saw the elusive look of her brother, full of what she thought it was resentment. But the truth was that he was embarrassed for having been able to defend her when she was being outraged. She had lived all her life assuming that nobody wanted her around. Assuming that her own mother hated her, and in return, she hated her back. With the same contempt she had for the beast who stole the essential pieces of the puzzle of her life. She hated her mother for letting that man into the house. That intruder entered the house so easily that it, it seems as, her, as if her mother was offering them her own children for a sacrifice. It has not passed a minute in which I would have not wanted to. It has not passed a minute in which I would have not wanted to hug her so tightly that she could she could get herself together once and for all. Every time she turned her face to look at me, the same sadness blinded blind her reason. There was nothing to soothe the rage. Are we leaving to America? Were her words over the phone? Why now? That I feel that I belong, that I can have something for my own. Why can't she say no? Why does her voice fade when she speaks, when he speaks? She just muted her thoughts. I don't want I don't want to leave. The South is my place. America is that somewhere that people say we are not we are not welcome to. I don't even speak the language. I don't know anyone there. I don't want to go, please. Say it. Say it out loud, I yelled. But she did not. She stayed in Mexico for a few months before she embarked herself in what would be her reality. But not even her family would console her soul, her soul because now she became La Vente Patrias. Yes, the traitor. No, it's not an exaggeration. Her father, Don Leon, could not stand such outrageousness. For him, each and every Mexican leaving the country was not looking for a better life. They were just traitors that preferred humiliate, humiliation over Sofiera. How dare you, he shouted. I can't believe it. Don't you understand that those gringos hate us? What, you, what are you going to do there? Are you going to be a maid? As if that were the worst thing that could ever happen to her. She knew she did not want to go to El Otro Lado, but she knew that staying in Mr. Leon's house would be worse. Now, she was not alone. She had two more mouths to feed, and that would not just affect her, her but also her chiquillos. You look so different, Tomas. Since I arrived, there is nothing more to talk about. You're always complaining, in a bad mood. I don't understand why. Why don't you even want to see your kids? You're, you're not the only one having bad times. Even the air is asphyxiating for me. I don't, want, I don't like the smell of this house that is not mine. I hate to clean the whole day while our host, Your Majesty the Queen, your sister, is sleeping. I don't like that 
the way that men, her husband, looks at me. I can't talk anymore because his dad is noise. I am just becoming your shadow, and you, you're just another, another wall in this house. She repeats every time he walks out the door when he leaves to work. She was not as courageous to yell, to tell him anything out loud. How, when, if whenever he was not working, he was sleeping. It's been almost a year she arrived in the city where the dreams come true. Now she perfected the routine of lying, because it's easier than explaining the whys and the hows and the whens. She stopped, she stopped counting the times being rejected by Tomas, and, and instead she started screaming and voicing nonsense to punish Tomas without thinking that the real pain was for those she loved the most. She was repeating what she saw at home when she was a child. I still remember that day. The day when they went for a walk and stopped at a fast food restaurant to get something to eat. And Tomas told her that she should ask for her own food. Not speaking the language made her rather starve than trying to do it herself. It was not good. It was not a good experience. But at least she understood that that learning the language was a priority. And I can say that it was the moment she realized she could not depend on Tomas for the rest of her life. All those years were an eternal minute, not because they were easy or fast, but because she wanted to think she was somewhere else, immersed in her own world of denial, of retrieval, looking for paths full of obscurity and failure, as always, trying to punish herself and those who she thought were part of a scheme against her, always returning to the age of, of the abyss. Hela says gringos. <laughs> there is nothing more gringo than saying gringo. <laughs> Muchísimas gracias. Thanks very much, Hela. Sorry. No, no, no. Sorry. Donata Watson Starsevic is a Jamaican-born immigrant who arrived to the United States at the age of six. She's an honor student, student at Coney John Jay, majoring in English with an art minor. She has won the CUNY Labor Arts Award and the John Jay Future of Justice Award. I, I just have to say that Donata has such a thirst for expression that last night she was buying minutes of other readers in order to read a little bit more. I hope that she achieved that. Please. My father's farm. In the dream, the sun was hot. In fact, I never felt the heat so hot. There I was walking along this dusty and deserted road when I saw a procession of people headed towards me dressed in full black. There was hairdresser Michelle, Candley, and a woman who favored my mother. Why did her face look like that? 
her skin bleach, bleach out till it red, till it raw. Where did everybody all go? I thought. Where is everyone going? I said. Mommy turned to me, looking straight through me. She said, you're not here. Keisha, dead. She turned back and kept walking. I joined the line, walking among them, but not with them. For the first time, I was truly alone. I looked up and began searching for the patches of blue in the bright white sky. God, tell her I'm sorry. Tell her I'm sorry. Then a voice replied, Surety forgives you. I woke up and shouted, what a lie. Two weeks later, Keisha died. Tell him to move him nasty ass, she said. You two are so different, Ivy and you. But like brothers, you reign exactly the same. I was broken by you. I wish someone would have told me, warned me to stay away from that boy. He was my American dream, the one that told me everything I wanted to hear. It was the papers, the papers. They ruled my mind, engulfed my life. I had no papers, papers. There are these times of years when my being aches for you. Not every part of me, because I hate to hear you speak. I loved you through all your flaws, and still you don't want me. And still you don't see me. And still you don't call me, and still you lie to me. And still I pretend I don't know. Stay focused. Okay, you gave me pleasure, but never, oh never, were we ever connected. My mind wanted so bad to merge with yours, but this block, this rock, it stood in our way. Forgive me for believing in you, in us, America, forgive me. I dreamt too much. Yeah, you blocked him, erased his number, changed your number, ripped up his pictures, burned his cars, threw out his hats, but still, he is with you. You buried your culture, might as well, you couldn't go back, turn down your voice, submerge yourself in this life, this American life. You worked hard, but still they don't want you, and still something they have stayed with you. It's the ambition, the ambition won't leave you. God, what should I do with all the stuff I have inside? Can you not help me? Can you not see me? Do you not feel what's going on inside me? Holy Spirit, I need your guidance. Why would you not help? Release me. Release me from this pain, this prison. Speak to me plain. I'm not sure how, but I know it's going to happen. I will succeed. There is something holding me back, though. All of a sudden, I'm straining to concentrate, and the dreams are slipping away. I am a warrior. I am a conqueror, an overcomer, in the name of the Lord. Don't talk, don't talk defeat to me. I am a child of God, and I got the victory. Intersectionality at its finest, the power of I am. I am a woman. I am a black woman. I am an illegal black woman. 
I am a black immigrant woman. I am Jamaican, almost American, and still belong to none. They're watching you. Who's watching you? Immigration is trying to deport me. Okay, go home and get some rest. I am a prolific creator. Who are you? Oh yeah, walk off from their heads so high. Who you think it is? I am an artist. I am a writer. I like your style, he said. I am the voice of the undocumented dreamer. I am the leader of the free rail, the free world. Hey you, stay in your lane, he said. You're Jamaican. My nanny was Jamaican. Focus. I am a dreamer. Thank you for your application. We already have two black girls. I am a believer, an unapologetic believer in the goodness of an, in humanity, in hope, in freedom. I am successful. Keisha in Serbian means rain. The day of your burial, it rained. I found it odd you would be laid with all these soldiers. But just like these soldiers, you fought. You fought too in this country. When I think about it, you fought to be better despite this country. I'm stressed, she said. How fitting you'd be laid to rest here. Arlington National Cemetery. The American flag neatly folded over your coffin. What a joke. No, seriously, is this a joke? Is this really happening? Rain drops. Don't cry, be strong. <laughs> Let Keisha fall on you. Let her mouth wash on you. All her stuff, her shoes, her jewelry, these things. I looked around in horror. I didn't understand. I took up her green card. Her social, and it read, Keisha Watson Scott. Here lays a life suspended around papers and legality of documents stifled at its core, unable to move, to breathe, and then she gets it, the thing. And then she is no more. Oh death, oh life, this American life, where is your sting? Back on the farm, Abba, father. The stairs were long and spiral, people were crying and burning. Here my fate will be decided. Will I burn or enter into those pearly gates? I was subconscious. I was in line when he came in, dressed completely in white. My father, I couldn't look up. I wonder if he knew me. I wonder if he, he really knew me. I never prayed to be legal. I couldn't bring my lips to ask him for that. Papers, a document. I asked him for that boy, though. I cried and I prayed, a teenager's prayer, and he didn't give him to me. Focus. The music on the TV screen captured my imagination, dancing on chairs while elbow deep in dishwater, tapping my uncoordinated feet to the soundtrack of Footloose, 
calling Bobby Simmons over and over again, requesting, hit me baby one more time, waking up, peeking into Keisha's room and she got dressed for school, the colorful baggy jeans, Tommy Hilfiger button down shirts, blinded by Biggie's Juicy, beaten through the gold curtains. It was all a dream, he said. My childhood was beautiful in many ways. The 90s was the hood per se, but we lived great. The bookshelf was full of books and that was all I needed. I read the imaginary characters from the movies, on the TV screens, the singers on MTV and BT. They were all living their dreams, their American dreams. These people were more real to me than my friends. They were more real to me than my own family. Coming here was the best thing that could have ever happened to me, and still, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. I'm glad it happened to me and not you. In the womb, he called me by name, and that's why I came so early. No one thought we would make it. There will be trouble, he said. The spirit I've given you, my star, will lead you far, but beware of the creeping vine, he said. That ornamental plant disguised to enhance all your glory will try to contaminate your blood, your mind. The seeds I have planted would not easily take root in this place. Your tree must first be tested, then it will bear fruit. By their fruit you shall know them. So pick wise. Pack light and be ready for the fall. But through it all, never forget. Never forget where you came from. Never forget where you were born. Never forget your father's farm. Thank Blanca Takuri is junior is a junior at Brown College. She is pursuing a degree in finance. She was part of Brown Dreamer Diplomats during 2016 and 17. Blanca. and she barely saw her mother's face because she was moving from one place to another as she was late for work. Her mother dressed her as fast as she could in her thick blue sweater, pink boots, like a small poncho in an old black bag. As she finished it, Patty felt her mother's arms shaking and saw, and saw her eyes water. And she asked, to pass mommy. Her mother turned her head to one side and said, not Anita, and began dressing Johnny. A few minutes later, Patty heard her uncle's thick voice at the door. He was tall, wearing a navy hat, concealing his face down to his black beard, a long poncho that almost covered his knees and his black boots. ¿Están listas? he asked. Her mother answered him, ya Then she kissed and hugged her girls while she said, se portan bien, las amo. Even though Patty was only five years old, she felt that something was not right. They never went to her uncle's house that early, and never without her. Once they arrived to her uncle's house, they started having fun. But as the day got dark, Patty started wondering why, the why her mother had not come to get them yet. 
Every morning, Patty woke up to the ceiling, a small cold room, two windows, and her older sister sleeping next to her, which reminded her that her mother was gone. A few months passed. Dolores, Dolores did her best to make Patty feel cozy. She gave her affection, love, protection. She took care of her, but nevertheless, Patty didn't want to, Dolores to replace her mother. Dolores was eight years old, with her round red cheeks, with her almond-shaped eyes, long and beautiful black hair, and a small earmark in her left eyebrows. Dolores played along as if she was the mother. Whenever she had Patty, but Patty didn't want to love her back. Yet, she enjoyed being with her. Patty started following her everywhere, even when Dolores wants to be alone. Sometimes she wants to be like her. Patty always got in trouble when she wore Dolores' clothes. Dolores would chase her, but most of the times, she was unable to catch the little Radrani. Gradually, Dolores became Patty's comfort son, and Patty started loving her hugs, her kisses, even more the way Dolores come and braid her rebellious black hair. As the time went on, Patty was obligated to share Dolores' love with Janet, her annoying little sister, who had a beauty mark on her right cheeks close to her nose, short hair, and usually wore her old pink dress. She felt jealous, replacing, when Janet called Dolores Mommy Lula. And Dolores lifted her up, hugged her, and kissed her. In those moments, Patty went to punch her younger sister in the nose. But Dolores knew about Patty's feeling, and she used to say, a few months later, the phone rang. When she answered, Patty heard her mom, mom's voice on the line. Hola, mija, ¿cómo estás? She felt a shiver all over her body. Her heart beat faster and faster. Tears started running down her face. Reaching more, she said, hola, mami. However, at the same time, something pressed hard against her chest, and she couldn't have a clear conversation with her mother. Cuídate mucho, mija. Adios. Her mother said, and that was it. After Patty hung up the phone, she was filled with sorrow because she hadn't had enough time to say, I miss you, mother. When are you coming back? Or even a simple, I love you, mother. Disappointed, she went out for a walk. And while she was walking around the adobe freak houses, she found a pine tree and a mother plant next to each other. She folded the marvelous white light. Purple leaves smelled its aroma. After a few minutes, she turned around and she saw the most beautiful landscape in front of her. The cold, the cold wind, the cold wind hitting her face didn't distract her from the river. The bricks houses with her colorful roofs, surrounded by many pine trees and a long road across across the horizon. Beyond that, she saw some small mountains. Even further, a big mountain with its white peak. Five years passed. Then, then one day Dolores was on the phone and Patty was close enough to hear, Yes, Mom, I want to go. She was so curious to know where Dolores wanted to go and why she was so happy. Afterwards, Patty walked to Dolores and looked straight into her eyes and asked her, Where do you want to go? Dolores responded, I'm going to meet Mom. Excited, Patty asked, When are you going? Dolores was silent. Then, with tears in her eyes, she said, Rivers are not coming with you. Patty felt her blood, blood warming and rising to her veins. Why are you leaving us? She said. I'm not leaving you. You are coming later, Dolores responded. Patty couldn't hold back her tears any longer. She wiped her tears away with her hand and said, 
coming later. What do you mean by that? Dolores couldn't answer her. Suddenly, they heard Janet cry out, Don't leave us, Mommy Luna. Dolores and Patty turned around and saw Janet standing beside them, crying. With her short arms, Dolores held them very tight. I promise we will be together soon. She whispered on their shoulders. Patty couldn't accept the idea of being without Dolores. Her friend, her sister, her mother was leaving them again and she was not able to do anything about it. Eventually, the unexpected day arrived. Patty was at the favorite place between the pine tree and the mother plant. When Dolores and Janet came out and sat down next to her, I am li I'm leaving now, Dolores said. Patty felt a note blocking her throat. Janet Moss made her feel worse. As she looked at the mountains, she simply said goodbye. Dolores cut a mouth of flour and placed it into her palm. Can you give me one final hug? She asked. Patty shook her head. Dolores looked at her face, and then a tear rolled down her red cheeks. A few minutes seconds, Dolores got up and she started walking away. Only, the, only then did Patty get up and grab her right arm. She hugged her very firmly with her skinny short arms. I will miss you. I love you, Patty said. A few minutes later, Dolores started walking to the bus station. Janet went to run after her, but Patty held her back. She held Janet in her arms, and stroking her hair, she whispered, It's okay. We are going to be fine. It's only for a few days. Patty knew that was a lie, and she had to reassure Janet. As Patty watched Dolores reaching the bus station, she felt her heart was breaking in pieces. Her tears were like a stream of water, and they didn't stop. It was even worse when Dolores boarded the bus. Patty felt Dolores taking her heart with her. Once again, Patty was unprotected. No one was there to have her anymore. Now it was her turn to have Janet. That day, despite the darkness, the moon rising in the sky, Janet and Patty remained between the pine, pine tree and the marble plant, hoping that Dolores would return any time. Although the dark night covered the landscape and the cold wind, cold wind hitting their faces, they, they still had hope until Janet fell asleep in Patty's lap. A little while later, later Patty couldn't escape the heavy sleep any longer, and she got up and took Janet to, her, to the bed. A week passed, and although Patty and Janet knew that Dolores wouldn't come back, each night after six o'clock they used to go to the same spot to wait for her. Analytics at Broad College. 
The private party was inside of a home, uh, the home of a friend of Jeff, Gaia's owner, by the name of Dan Sweeper. Gaia, where I worked, was a brainchild of Mrs. Sweeper, a recognized former chef who now dabbled in real estate. This was the first time I would handle a private event inside someone's home. However, it was not the first time that Joey looked out for me. When I was asked broke and couldn't pay for college, Joey gave me the chance to wait tables. A good waiter easily rivals the composer and charm of the Dalai Lama. You need the patience not to strangle at least one patron, at least once a night. <laughs> Nevertheless, a job is a job, and this job paid for soul-sucking bills, eight-pound textbooks, and a bowl of two or of the stickiest of the icky. This profession fits me. I enjoy bursts of conversation and cheery smiles, and in the moments that follow the unsaid silence, I pride in my careful appraisal of those around me, the focused gazes they share with one another, the intermittent nervous chuckles, the glasses, armed and ready for nervous sips, most common. It's a modern recluse who shares a common behavior to those of ostriches. While an ostrich buries their neck into the burrows of the ground, those who want to avoid eye contact with others bury themselves into the lustrous and gleaming infinite scrolls. Those are the common parties, but the private party that I went to, where I would be serving drinks for 125 beans, was entirely different. The crowd here was not a crowd, in a weird way they kind of resembled family. I picked up an order of hors d'oeuvres from Mr. Zweeber and trekked my way up to his home in the Upper West Side. Among the many castles along the Green Highway of Riverside Park, I found Zweebers within moments. The Filipino doorman stands from his post and walks to the doors to let me in after I knock. As he closes the door behind me, the click of the door handle echoes across the white marble lobby. Every step we take is a symphony, like stepping on sleep piano keys, sending waves of announcement rummaging through the staircases. The elevator is to your left, he says, but I opt for the stairs instead. The walls around me demand my attention. Every flight is like a new world depicted outside its apartment. I turn to one of the four corners that stood out to me the most and admire the miniature library built within their lobby. On one side, vintage seats from an old school theater, and to its right wall, there were 